one in eight people in the world is an Indian under the age of 30. Ultimately, if the people of Indian Kashmir decide that they do not want to be a part of India, then all bets are off in terms of what Pakistan will do as well. All political parties will try to indulge in some sort of spinning and some sort of fake news. While Modi and the BJP's politics are hyper-nationalist, it shares with the current hyper-nationalist moment which is sweeping across the world. He's representing the people who believe in and stand for a unified, strong nation. Hello and welcome to the final part of India Tomorrow, a series from the Conversations Anthill podcast. In this episode, we will be dissecting the results of India's 2019 elections. I'm Annabelle Bly from The Conversation, and I'm joined this episode by our series co-host, Indrajit Roy, lecturer in politics at the University of York. Hello, Annabelle. How are you? Good, thank you. And we've also got Nikita Sood, Associate Professor of Development Studies at the University of Oxford on the line. Hello. Hi. And joining us from India, Mujib Raymond, Assistant Professor at Jamia Millia Islamia, a university in New Delhi. Hi. We are recording this on Friday morning UK time. Uh, The results are nearly all in, not quite all in, but um, it looks clear that Narendra Modi's BJP will secure more than 300 of the 543 seats in India's lower house of parliament. So it's a landslide victory. Narendra Modi securing a crushing defeat over the Congress party in today's election, returning him to power for the next five years. A hero's welcome at the BJP headquarters. What Narendra Modi has achieved has not been done in 62 years. A single party winning a consecutive term, increasing its margin. How surprised are you by these results? Perhaps we could start with you, Indrajit. As someone who's been looking at these elections for a while, We were told that Modi will win, but I think I'm very surprised with the scale of his victory and the crushing defeat he has imposed on his rivals. So yes, it's the scale of the victory, the fact that on its own, the BJP secured over 300 seats. That's commendable, to be honest. It's it's remarkable, but that's also surprising. And Mujib, you're you're joining us from Delhi. What is the sense on the ground there? Uh, well, you know, it certainly caught all of us completely unawares, not just uh, in terms of what most of us who visited different parts of India during this long campaign, talking to people, and also we were kind of mislaid by the media. Even the media did not catch the scale of it. The question is not about winning 300 seats, but the huge margin through which they managed to BJP candidates defeated their nearest rivals. Uh, so that is uh, a huge, huge surprise. And uh, what most of us could not figure out that uh, BJP last time got 31% of votes. This time they have added almost 7 or 8% of votes to their own kitty. So that's also another huge surprise that, that the votes there would go up to such an extent. So uh, most importantly, the two other things that I found completely surprising was in a manner that, that they managed to unleash their assault on the opposition alliances in Uttar Pradesh and uh, some of the new states that they were trying to enter into, making roads, uh, almost to the extent they planned in West Bengal and in Orissa, 
in both states, they managed to reach to their target almost. And there are now two major parties waiting to conquer these two state governments. The only thing that is not surprising is that, that they could not succeed in their southern project in, in states like Andhra Pradesh, Kerala and Tamil Nadu, where they have not been able to enter. And, and how about you, Nikita? The, the extent of your surprise at this landslide victory? I'm uh, surprised like all my academic friends, but uh, I was in India in April and talking to a range of people uh, in North India and Western India and uh, across class and uh, job categories. So I spoke to Dalit uh, professionals, to, you know, Jat, uh, blue collar workers, uh, and all of them were absolutely certain for the states they belong to, uh, Haryana, UP, Goa, uh, Maharashtra, that Modi was coming back. And they were not talking about their own parliamentary candidates, about you know their local issues, uh, but they were talking about this big persona who had obviously, uh, when I was talking to them, this was April and it was in the aftermath of the Pulwama attacks and the Balakot supposed retaliation by India where, you know, India went into Pakistani airspace and bombed, you know, supposedly what was the shelter of a terrorist organization. Uh, and that had changed the narrative. And these people, whether they were BJP supporters or not, said they felt that this had been the turning point and Modi was coming back and very much Modi, you know, the discourse is about him. I think that's an interesting point to hone in on. It it felt like a presidential election in lots of ways. And how how significant do you think it was that that Modi managed to make this election kind of all about a vote on on his leadership? I mean, that is, uh, you know, taking us back to 1970s India, where, where you know, the slogan was Indira Gandhi, Indira is India and India is Indira. So, you know, that was the last time we saw this very personality-centric politics. Uh, and it is uh, to be commended that we are, you know, on, on the part of the BJP, that we are back to this very, uh, you know, person-centric politics where every constituency, people are talking about Modi. Uh, you know, and now that he's a known entity, in 2014, people were testing him, but now that he's a known entity, I think this uh, personality-centricness can go both ways because he he perhaps will be more on the test as a, as a leader uh, than he has been in the first five years because everything now centers even more on him, especially after this thumping victory. Hmm. And, you know, as much as it's been about Modi, to what extent is it also a failing of the opposition to to kind of counter his narrative? It would seem to observers like me that the opposition took pages out of the BJP playbook uh, from the 2014 election uh, and repeated them and really went after the whole corruption agenda and the Rafale uh, you know, aircraft deal where Modi himself had intervened, the defense minister had been less of a player 
a big business house in India uh, led by Anil Ambani got the contract for building these fighter jets, never having built any uh, you know, fighter jets or military equipment before. And the opposition, particularly the Congress, really focused on that with their slogan, Chokidar Chor Hair. Uh, however, what seems to have gone wrong for them, and obviously it's easy for us to now say retrospectively, and, you know, I, I, I have sympathy for the Congress politicians who thought they were playing it right. Uh, what seems to have gone wrong is that has not clicked when a leader like Rahul Gandhi is saying, because Modi has then turned back and said, even your father was a thief. He literally had, you know, these kinds of slogans in his election rallies. Uh, so, you know, coming from an elite politician, the corruption and being a thief uh, slogan did not work as well as the so-called grassroots politician Modi and his supporters saying the elite are corrupt and we need to dislodge them. So what worked in 2014 was tried in 2019 by other actors and it hasn't worked. Uh, And, you know, therefore the opposition needs to be looking for other playbooks. Yeah. And I mean, how significant was it that Rahul Gandhi lost the kind of long, long time family seat of of the Congress party uh, in, in Ameti? Mujib, maybe I could bring you in here. Sure. Uh, It's enormous. Uh, It's enormous. As Nikita said, I just want to add uh, that that this was essentially not BJP's victory. It was essentially Modi's victory. And uh, Modi has the ability, proved it twice, both in 2014 and now, that he can field anybody and get that guy elected. So from that point of view, Gandhis have lost, lost that ability to get their people elected because of their own stature or their own work or own history or charisma. So this particular defeat tells that that, that Gandhis even can't win by themselves. So so the defeat in Amethi of Rahul Gandhi is in that sense massive, uh, partly because of that reason, partly also it signals that, that they are almost non-entity today in the northern Indian politics, the heartland of Indian politics, because he has a huge victory in Kerala, but in the in the north, they're almost a non-entity now. So Amethi is surprising to an extent, but journalists who work on the ground in Uttar Pradesh have been writing about how the Gandhis have neglected Amethi, uh, and uh, Modi and Smriti Rani, who's the candidate who won in Amethi, have really targeted the seat with government programs, uh, you know, welfare programs like the building of toilets, uh, the building of homes for poor people. It is very telling that Rahul Gandhi went to Amethi only once in the entire election campaign, whereas his opponent, who won, literally parked herself there for months and visited this constituency throughout the five you know the last five years so of course this is a victory of Modi but they have also really worked in particular constituencies with a very targeted game plan and it's symbolic that they have defeated Rahul Gandhi and they have worked on it for five years to do this and this really sweetens their victory but it's not an accident. And I think what we've seen in these elections is some kind of a consolidation of what we might now be considering a form of Hindu welfareism, where ideas of Hindu, Hindutva, etc. are, of course, there. 
but alongside you have very clearly sort of targeted welfareist programs on the ground things that uh, such as you know constructing toilets providing houses providing credit for you know poor for uh, poor, uh, poor people etc these are things that have really that seem to have worked on the ground now we may debate about the quality of all the services provided but on the ground i think there has been much more than what uh, critics have you know given credit for these the, the things seem to have reached uh, poor people but perhaps in specific constituencies um, but i happen to be talking to uh, you know the person who sort of helps uh, at home and uh, in delhi and she said she would go back to her home in west bengal to vote uh, and we were generally chatting asked her who are you going to vote for and she said of course modi Uh, of course bjp and of course she was using saying both modi and bjp together so she knew modi the man she also knew bjp the party and we said why because west bengal is not a traditional bjp sort of seat and she said well they've given us homes they've given us toilets uh, they've provided us credit uh, and these three things in that order uh, seem to be working for her seem to have worked in amethi as nikita just mentioned and perhaps have worked in many parts of north india Could you just explain briefly the significance of of the result in West Bengal and as you just said in West Bengal isn't historically a BJP stronghold. Yes, uh, West Bengal has historically been a stronghold of the left uh over, you know for since the 1970s the left front ruled West Bengal uninterruptedly for 35 years. In 2011 the left was dislodged from its preeminent position by a regional party a state specific party led by mamata banerjee so bengal has typically been this two party state you know where the conflict or the 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 competition has been between the left and mamata banerjee in these elections the bjp seems to have broken that two party system uh, it's completely dislodged the left uh, from west bengal politics altogether although mamata banerjee's sort of electoral position remains strong the bjp's demolished the left and has emerged as the challenger in west bengal and i think in some ways this reflects the state that the bjp is in in other parts of uh, of north india where they've really sort of made inroads into constituencies into areas where they did not have a presence before demolishing a lot of the regional parties uh, we see that in bihar which is uh, among india's poorest uh, states but also a state that sends a significant number of representatives we've seen this in uttar pradesh which is india's largest bellwether state so to speak where we saw a coalition of regional parties that had promised to take on the bjp together but you know when you look at the vote shares the bjp's won these uh one uttar pradesh which with massive vote shares you know leading to a complete decimation of the regional parties uh, across the north so it's really been a huge kind of landslide and we're we're going to see a second term of of the bjp ruling as a majority uh, in government moving on now to kind of what we what we can expect to see over the next 5 years and the significance of this of this vote i mean perhaps we could i could just start by asking nikita how significant you think it is that we are returning to another majority 
So in the 90s, it seemed like the era of uh, one-party rule was over and academics were writing about, you know, this being the time of coalitions. Uh, And many of us felt that coalitions were more democratic because they represent many more constituencies, interest groups than, you know, single-party rule, especially if it's a party like the BJP, which comes to power on this sort of Hindu nationalist agenda. But that is very much the era we are in now, where we are back to this polar uh, contest where there's a poll in politics. It used to be the Congress till the 1980s, and it is now the BJP. Uh, when people were looking at the run-up to the current elections, they felt the BJP will probably come back to power, but with a reduced majority, it will be forced to get into coalition arrangements with regional parties, with identity-based parties, and that will make them you know, listen to the rest of India a lot more, not just to their core constituency. What we are going to see, of course, is the BJP has gotten to pre-poll alliances and it will, you know, honor those alliances. But there is no doubt who is going to be calling the shots here. Uh, it's not just going to be the BJP. It is going to be Modi and the president of the party, Amit Shah, uh, who were the dominant duo in politics over the last five years and this election result has strengthened their hand so we're going to see a further centralization of power uh, and that is something we need to be vigilant about in the years to come. I think in his victory speech Modi vowed to build a strong and inclusive India. Now in lots of ways this election has been seen as a as a kind of vote on on the BJP's identity politics and its ideas of Hindu nationalism. Mujib, maybe I could bring you in here to talk to us about the significance of of the vote along kind of identity lines. Yeah, uh, Prime Minister Modi, as soon as the train started suggesting that he was going to come back to power, he tweeted, he said that he would like to build an inclusive India. And the first victory speech that he delivered in the evening there he made fun of secularism and attacked secularism and said uh, that we would like to abide by the constitution but at the same time he made fun of secularism and he said people who have been talking about secularism for last so many decades in this elections they are nowhere to be seen and that badge has lost its meaning how can you say that that you're going to abide by the constitution on the one hand and then abandon secularism because secularism is considered to be the core values of Indian constitution? So that, in fact, uh, raises a lot of questions in what sense he was going to look at the issue of minority rights or a lot of issues which have provoked opposition political parties to take dig at him with respect to, say, whatever happened in the last five years with regard to lynching and other issues. So I'm not too sure that that whether Mr. Modi is going to interpret this particular result as something which is also an attempt to reprimand him with regard to lynching uh, and all of that stuff, whether he was going to come out with a special law to deal with it. Uh, So there will be a massive ramification with respect to Muslim politics or minority rights in India. I just want to read out, there is a nice write-up today in Indian Express by one of the general secretaries, also groomed in RSS by name Ram Madhav. So it's essentially a very direct threat that he has almost unleashed 
on the liberals and secularists that you uh, you say your days are over and whoever is there they are going to be taken care of the remaining part of the five years. So we did actually have a, a question from one of the listeners of our of our podcast series, someone called Indira Garamella. They wrote in about this issue of secularism and seemed to seem to say that you know in previous years the Congress Party and other regional parties would would talk a lot about secularism, but he felt that it was not as big an issue in this election of 2019. Uh, I don't know uh, if you would agree with that or if it was maybe not as overt a debate. Uh, well, you know, time and again, opposition leaders, uh, not only in the campaign, also in various TV discussions and debates that I have followed, uh, they did mention about secularism, you know, social harmony and all these issues about it. What they did not do is this, they did not paint or presented Modi as a communal leader or a bigoted leader. For instance, Navin Patnaik, the Odisha's chief minister, in an interview did when he was asked, how do you look at Bharatiya Janata Party or BJP? Do you consider it a communal party? He did say that it's a communal party. But uh, I would agree to uh, partially because uh, opposition parties did not did not really make a case of saying that that the return of Mr. Modi or BJP would threaten our social fabric and all of that. That kind of an argument was not made. Instead, they focused on on Mr. Modi as being corrupt, uh, as Nikita mentioned, Chokidar Chore argument and all of that. So I would not say that, that you know they did not pay attention to it, but it did not come out in a very prominent way. And this election saw saw the controversial figure of Pragya Singh Thakur being elected. How significant was was her election? It's very significant because it is sending out a signal about who the next generation is and who is going to be promoted in this party. Uh, I'm not at all surprised that Pragya Singh Thakur was elected because we have to remember that Bhopal in central India, uh, where she fought from, is considered a safe seat of the BJP. They haven't lost it since 1989. So they were putting this very divisive figure in a safe seat, almost sure that she will be elected. And that is meant to send a signal to their constituency. Uh, the same can be said for this highly divisive 28-year-old called Tejasvi Surya, who's been elected from Bangalore South constituency. Uh, he is one of the youngest candidates. He is, you know, very much in the mold of these highly divisive leaders who go around, you know, having these very communal speeches in the elections. He has been elected and he is going to be groomed along with people like Pragya as the next generation. Uh, so, you know, Mr. Modi, as someone was mentioning, may have made this very inclusive statesman like Twitter uh, statement about how this was going to be an inclusive India. And he made it a point to say he would like to take his opponents along. But they are talking multiple languages for different constituencies. Uh, and uh, therefore, we need to keep an eye on the different games that are being played here. Just moving on now to, to some of the policies that we, we might be able to expect from this new kind of reinvigorated Modi government. There was a lot of talk over the Indian economy in, in over the election campaign and 
a lot of people were saying that you know policies like demonetization and the failure to uh, increase the number of jobs, especially for young people, a lot of people said that these could be election deciding issues, and and it, and it seems that they haven't been. How big a challenge will this be over the next five years, and and what sort of policies do you think we can expect from the Modi government? So I think we need to remember that these elections were the most uh, expensive that India has ever had. Uh, And they came on the back of uh, something called electoral bonds, where corporate houses, including uh, subsidiaries of foreign companies and multinationals, can buy uh, electoral bonds, essentially funding political parties. Uh, And we don't know who these are. They can be bought anonymously. Uh, And the kinds of figures that we have from from the State Bank of India are that in April, March, April 2019, electoral bonds worth 0.5 billion dollars were bought uh, now these have been bought in large denominations so we know they are corporate business entities that have that kind of cash that are buying them uh, and we can be sure that they're going to be expecting returns now that their you know government is in power in 2018 electoral bonds 98 percent of them went to the BJP So, you know, chances are things continued along those lines and the BJP has been a big beneficiary. Now that it is in power, it is payback time. Uh, So they they had a rather poor record on the environment uh, where they were, you know, disregarding the National Green Tribunal and, uh, you know, giving away mining licenses, large swathes of land to their, uh, you know, business houses who are their partners. And we can expect that to continue or be heightened. Uh, So the environmental agenda is something to watch out for. Uh, Now, if, you know, companies are being encouraged, big industry, mining, etc., it would suggest that perhaps jobs will also be created. Uh, However, we have to remember that India, like many parts of the world, is moving towards this jobless uh, growth scenario where even if the GDP is roughly 7%, the jobs that may be created are going to be very precarious and contract-based because we are increasingly moving towards automation in lots of our sectors. So employment is going to keep being a problem like it was in the last five years where uh, you know, Mr. Modi came to power in 2014, promising that he would create roughly 250 crore jobs uh, in, in 10 years or 25 uh, crore jobs a year. Uh, none of that happened. In fact, we saw a deceleration of the employment rate. So formal employment figures had gone down. Uh, and even though business might uh, you know, have a bonanza uh, thanks to the, the favors they have done to the government. We cannot be sure that jobs will be created and the employment issue will go away, which takes us back to the microeconomic initiatives, the welfare initiatives uh, that we were talking about earlier in the program. So the reaching out to constituencies on the ground through the building of housing, the you know, giving of bank accounts, gas connections, which this government also did in 2014-19. Uh, those kinds of things might continue. And that also means India's 
fiscal deficit situation needs to be watched because last year something like 2.5% of the G- the fiscal deficit stood at something like 2.5% of the gdp rate and that needs to be watched because uh, you know where is this money going to come from to appease or you know to reach out to the constituencies that have voted this government into power when the three of you look back on this election when you potentially write your books about it over the over the coming year or so what do you think will be the defining factors now we've just talked about the economy but we've also talked about cow politics we've talked about uh, the issue of Kashmir which was really big at the start of the election campaign Indrajit, maybe I could ask you first what what do you sort of think will will be the the defining thing that, that people look back on of the 2019 elections? I mean, looking at the election campaign, looking at the sorts of narratives that were being presented to people and looking at the outcomes, I think it's a classic case of, uh, you know, what we might want to think about in terms of we might want to talk about something around a politics of passion. I think the kinds of passions that were aroused in these elections and of course, elections are have have been about passions. I mean, it's it's not you know, entirely a new thing. But I think if you look at the results, you just look at the huge majorities that the BJP has won, not only at the country level, but in the constituencies that they won, you know, they in a multi-party system to win with 60% majorities, 50 plus percent majorities, when you're pitted against, uh, you know, a number of uh, oppositions, uh, you know, that's not possible unless you've you've touched people's hearts. For good or bad, I mean, that's a different sort of issues. I mean, if I were to write a book or if we were to sort of think about, you know, looking at India in comparative perspective with, say, Turkey or Brazil or even the United States, for that matter, I would probably sort of think about passionate politics rather than populism or, you know, other sorts of things, which are a sort of 20th century concepts. I think one has to sort of look at you know, what's going on for the, the kinds of passions that have been incited. So whether it's love or hate, or envy, or hope, or any of these, you know, sort of uh, emotions. Um, I think that was sort of so much on display, and the results show it. I mean, in the past, we've had winners winning with 30% of the vote, even the BJP sort of, you know, won with 30% of the vote, etc. But this time, you know, the scale of their victories in, in the constituencies they won couldn't have been possible without the unleashing of passions. I feel like I've got to ask you about the sort of distinction you're maybe making between passion and populism, because I guess a lot of people will just be saying, oh, Modi's a populist and this is just another another global election that we're seeing of a, of a populist politician coming to power. But you're saying there's a slight difference. Yes, I would I would sort of not rule out the populist element in the sense, you know, in the way in which leaders make direct connections with the people, reach out to the people directly, which Modi does, of course, through, you know, his WhatsApp messages, through his presence on the social media. But I think we have to also uh, appreciate the distinctiveness of Modi vis-a-vis, say, Trump or Bolsonaro, but similar to maybe Ardoyan. In the sense, like Ardoyan, Modi, you know, very much belongs to the political system. He's not an outsider. He's he, he belongs, you know, he, he was a chief minister of a state. He's a full-fledged member of the 
party. He was groomed by the RSS, which is the sort of ideological uh, mentor of the BJP. So he's very much a part and parcel of the political system. And I do think that these elections were, of course, about Modi, but it was also about the ideas that Modi holds and the ideas that he sort of uh, expressed, which is something that, uh, you know, his uh, party and the RSS have been working on for uh, nearly 90 years. <laughs> uh, you know, the ideas of uh, India being a Hindu nation and, you know, the sort of lacing of the political narrative with Hindutva. So in a sense, where populism would be about a person only and the person's direct reach to the people. I think what we see here is these passions being generated and dispersed through carders, through committed carders, through opinion influencers on social media, through a party system. You know, Modi is very much a part and parcel of the BJP and his victory is a victory for the party uh, in a way that um, maybe Trump could be said to have hollowed out the Republican Party. Mrs. Gandhi hollowed out the Congress Party. Mujib, I wanted to ask you because you I know you you wrote a book about the 2014 elections and you and you've written about the rise of saffron power. What do you think when it comes to 2019 will sort of define this election and, and what would be the focus for you uh, in, in writing about it? Well, uh, you know, just to, uh, to add uh, to what Indrajit said, uh, while uh, responding to the adulations that uh, he received during his victory last time in the parliamentary board meeting, uh, Narendra Modi in 2014, he became emotional and he said that that it is the party that has given me everything. Party is like my mother and he became teary-eyed. And uh, so I totally agree with uh, within the Jit that he is somebody who is from the party and he wants to build the party. In the book, I suggested that uh, that Modi is the first Hindu right leader in Indian politics who recognized and understood that Hindutva, the ideology, the majoritarian ideology, cannot be a front door project. It has to be a back door project. And that is how he brought in Hindutva through the slogan of development or because in the last election. And in this election, however, he simply... Uh, he tried to make it a kind of a front door project and he has succeeded in doing that. So I would look at 2019 election results as a legitimation of the majoritarian politics. And I have always looked at BJP not as just one party, but it's an ideological movement which has been working very hard since last hundred years to outsmart secularists in order to establish a majoritarian polity and, and, and and to a great extent, this particular result has given them some degree, great degree of legitimacy and given them a huge, huge opportunity to do so. I've also suggested uh, in my book that the rise of BJP was essentially leading to what I said is a saffron system in, in politics. So in this election, the results and, and the coming years would essentially legitimize the political system as saffron system where you'll have majoritarian politics operating in almost all organs of the government and pushing its own agendas. But, you know, you'll have all these constitutions and all of that stuff around it, but still you would not be able to figure it out that how to resist them. 
Once in a while, there would be noise against it, but mostly it would be a majoritarian system that would kind of penetrate and legitimize in course of time, and therefore causing discrimination and the rest of the things along with it. Nikita, you, I wanted to pick up on on something you mentioned when you were talking about the economy, and you, you mentioned the issue of corruption, which is not something that we had time to really look at in our in our podcast series. Um, but it is something that that one of our listeners wrote in about. A gentleman called John Slight wrote in to to basically say that India is is drowning in this cancer of corruption. It's an issue that he says is you know swept under the mat, and basically accuses Indian democracy of being kind of saddled with with the issue of corruption. Um, to what extent do you think that's fair? And should issues of corruption undermine people's faith in in Indian democracy? You know, the North has often looked at the South as this den of corruption. Uh, But, you know, what is corruption? It's the use of public office for private benefit. And what we have been talking about in this entire program is this complete blurring of boundaries between, you know, what is the personality of one politician versus the party? Where does the party end and the state begin? Uh, Those kinds of lines are very blurred and are going to be even more blurred in the years to come with this huge victory for one party on the back of one leader. Uh, So I'm not sure corruption is a helpful category. Uh, I think it is, you know, almost a semi-racist category, but it is analytically not helpful to understand polities such as India. Uh, We should be looking at why people approach their representatives, not through official channels, but through systems of patronage, through these sort of friendly relations. Uh, And that's because they might have found the state to be inaccessible or, you know, very removed from their realities. And that's why they use these different approaches to reach the state. And the state also reaches out to them uh, in the you know, very friendly, patronage-heavy ways. Uh, And what this government and what we have been seeing in previous governments as well is that parties become the sort of buffers between this sort of slightly removed above society state and uh, society. And, you know, to me, that is not corruption. That is just the nature of the state in India and many parts of the world, which spills over these, you know, very rationalist kind of boundaries uh, that we want to put the state into. Uh, So I wouldn't call it corruption. I would call it a blurring of lines between state, society and politics. And if anything, we are going to see more of that. Uh, And that is not something to condemn, but it is, you know, something to understand why is it happening and what does it mean for India and its politics? So just finally to pick up on an, on another thread that we talked about in in our in our series was actually the, episode 1 was all about misinformation as an as an issue in India um you you mentioned blurring of lines and obviously you know the whole issue of of fake news and misinformation is is a global one Indrajit, perhaps I could bring you back in here to comment on the extent that that misinformation was was an issue in in the 2019 elections 
Oh, it's totally an issue. I mean, when we think about misinformation or fake news, I think it contributed centrally to the passions I was talking about earlier, you know, passions of hope, passions of anger, all of those things. So, you know, misinformation about uh, cows being smuggled or people being killed uh, on the negative side or how great and good, uh, you know, certain politicians uh, were, including and obviously Mr. Modi, but also, uh, you know, such kind of misinformation was marshaled in favor of other politicians but as as we discussed nobody mobilized and marshaled misinformation and fake news as effectively as uh, as as the bjp's uh, kada did whether it was the uh, news about the retaliation for the pulwama attacks uh, whether it was uh, news about how muslims were treating hindus in areas where hindus were a minority uh, whether it was news of, uh, you know misinformation about how cows were being treated and this is of course not only during the elections but uh, you know over the last 5 years i think as uh, mujib had picked up so yes i think it's it's something to look out for uh, fake news has been with us uh, you know for, for for a long time but i think the medium you know the fact that now we have social media and so you know whatsapp sort of based uh, platforms which allow fake news to go viral i think that's what makes it and will continue to make it uh, an issue to look out for including over the next 5 years when undoubtedly you know there'll be a lot of news uh, or there'll be spread about how wonderful the government uh, is uh, which upon closer scrutiny may turn out to be not quite the case uh, so it's it's undoubtedly something to look out for not only in india but across the world yes absolutely that is something we will have to watch out for But I'm afraid that is all that we have time for this episode. A big thanks to Nikita Sood from the University of Oxford, Mujib Rehman from Jamia Millia Islamia University in New Delhi, and my India Tomorrow series co-host Indrajit Roy from the University of York. Thank you all for joining us. This is the last episode of our India Tomorrow series. Do check out the rest of it. We've got some great episodes on the role of fake news in Indian society, on Hindu nationalism, and India's economy. Thanks to all of those who've listened and got in touch with us, and a massive thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this series. Lastly, Indrajit, thank you so much. We couldn't have done it without you. Check out theconversation.com for more coverage of the Indian election results from academics around the world. The Anthill will be back in the coming months with a new series that we're really excited about. Watch this space for a trailer coming soon. Follow us on social media at Anthill Pod and sign up to our newsletter via theconversation.com or the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. And lastly, a big thanks to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. In particular, Dave Goodfellow and John Cheatdom for showing us the ropes. The Ant Hill is produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly, with sound by Alex Port Felix. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.